Welcome back to the world's last night, everyone. This is James Thayer. Guys, today we are in Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to see the conversation continue between Moses and God here. If you remember last, he's speaking to God. God is speaking to him through basically a burning bush, a Christophany. And uh, let's jump right into verse 1. Here we go. Then Moses answered, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, the Lord's not appear to you? All right, so Moses, as you see in this chapter, it's not his best side. He is going to delve into a lack of faith, and it's going to be very unfortunate. You're going to see excuse after an excuse, and you're going to actually find that God puts up with it pretty well until the very end. But God has already told him, I'm going to be with you. He's already told him they're going to listen to you. And so he's still saying, well, what if, what if they don't? And what if they say, it wasn't God that appeared to you? So he's, he may as well just come out and say, you know, I doubt you, God, like I don't have faith. And so God is, as we talked about last time with self-confidence, he's trying to reorient Moses's worldview to not think about himself, stop thinking about himself and instead keep his mind on God for it's God with him. God doesn't desire to give us self-confidence. Self-confidence is is a worldly attribute. Self-confidence leads to pride, which leads to your downfall. And in addition to that, it can't really fix your problems. And You know, like a broken thing can't necessarily fix itself. It usually needs uh, the inventor or a repair technician to come out and fix it. And the human condition is the same is the same way. Trying to bolster some form of self-confidence to solve those problems is not normally the most effective way to go about it. We as human beings are meant to run on God. He is our confidence. And he's trying to explain this to Moses, who's just not getting it. I'll keep I'll continue. The Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Then he said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground and it became a snake. Moses ran from it. So this is a very convincing snake. It wasn't necessarily, it's not, you know, it became, it looked like a snake. It had to have actually been a snake for Moses to have been scared of it. This man who has worked in the wilderness for the last 40 years. But the Lord told him, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. So the snake turned back into a staff. This will take place, he continued. So they will believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So God has basically given him this sort of divine trick. Only And only the divine could do this, really. I mean, a magician can obviously fake this. But to create life from non-life, as we've talked about before, that's a, a trick that's magic that's reserved for God himself. Something interesting to think about, side topic, I will not delve into this very much. I've had someone who is point blank asked me, though, what my thoughts were on whether or not animals had spirits. Um, I think scripture like this can sort of point us in, into a direction on that. I don't necessarily believe that they do. I don't necessarily believe that an animal has any any soul that can be saved. I do believe that there are animals in on the new earth. I believe there's probably animals extraterrestrial out on other planets. 
but I don't believe necessarily that they have a supernatural component to them like humans do, who have been given the divine mark and impartation of God's image. And, you know, this is not the best argument, but you can sort of use this passage and ask yourself whether or not this snake that is being turned into a piece of wood and turned back into a snake has a spirit or not. Okay, I'll keep going. In addition, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased like snow. Then he said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. He put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. So what's the significance of these three signs? Well, they're supposed to be meant to sway the human heart so that these people actually believe that God sent Moses. Now, he, God had already said they would believe. This is really for Moses' benefit. And it should be unnecessary. When God tells you something's going to happen, it happens. But he's given these three sort of signs. Now, the first one is basically this sign that Moses is going to be able to conquer his enemies. Remember, he's afraid of the snake. And God says, grab it by the tail, which, by the way, is the dangerous part to grab a snake by. You want to grab it by the head where it can't strike you. But he grabs it by the tail, it turns back into a stick. So here's a sign that Moses can conquer evil, conquer an enemy. Now, the hand one, turning a diseased hand into a healthy hand, that would be sort of a sign that Moses' impurities can be made whole. He can be made pure. Now, the last one, though, the blood one, that, it sort of signifies judgment. You know, this is like the last straw, the last sign, and this is, I'm taking something good, fresh water, and I'm, I'm turning it foul into blood, which you can't drink, and it doesn't get turned back. So, you sort of have these three signs, and there are, there are significance there, and I'm sure there's more significance than what I just drew out there, but I kind of wanted to at least give some sort of explanation for them. Verse 10, But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you have been speaking to your servant, because I am slow and hesitant in speech. Okay, Moses, what the heck does this have to do with anything, right? Here's a guy, God's already told him what to do, he's made excuses, he asked for signs, now he's got signs, and he's still, even after that, he's making excuses. And you and I both know people like this, super annoying, the worst to work with. And Moses may be lying here. Being educated in Egypt, Moses was probably actually pretty eloquent. Now, there is something to say that he may not be 40 years you know, back, probably speaking a different language in Midian. He may not be eloquent in Egyptian anymore. But this could be a lie, or just like a false excuse, or it could be true. It could be that Moses stutters, has a bad, you know, speaking habit. That could be true. But I, I'm, I'm here to say either way, and God's going to mention this, <laughs> either way doesn't matter. God is going to give him what he needs to accomplish this task. He needs to stop making excuses. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to him, Who made the human mouth? 
Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Several things here. One, that's such a boss statement. Yes, God made the human mouth. That thinking about that, you're just like, well, duh. Like, why was I ever making this stupid excuse? Second, you might think it's it's kind of bad. It's you know he's saying you know uh, who made them who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind. I believe that these are only because of the introduction of sin. I don't think that from the beginning that was God's plan for human. We know that there's a the human race. You know there's a perversion due to sin in humanity, and it touches everything. And I believe that even touches the genome. You talk about. Uh, babies born with an addiction, a proclivity to alcoholism because their parents were alcoholic or, you know, mother drinking while being pregnant and the baby has fetal alcohol syndrome. I believe that sin touches everything and that includes genetics, abnormalities, all of that. God still makes them though, allows them to be made that way, even with the sin, the effects of sin. Um, What I think he's really saying here though is even if you were blind, even if you were deaf, mute, whatever, like, I'm the one that is sending you. I made the, all those things. I made the human mouth. I can make you eloquent. It's not an excuse, Moses. And he says, now go, exclamation point. <laughs> I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Remember, now God is putting the focus, once again, back where it belongs, which is on him. He is there with Moses. It doesn't matter how terrible of a speaker Moses is, Moses plus God is going to get the job done. And God can use broken people and people with broken instruments, like a stutter, to preach the gospel. And in fact, pastor at, at my old church had a stutter and, and preached. And uh, basically through preaching, mastered his stutter. Is interesting. And then here you go, Moses. He's finally just like, cut to the chase. He's finally cutting to the chase, done making excuses. He's actually saying what's in his heart. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. (laughs) Verse 14. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Man, I just need to turn that off every time I... I'm sorry, guys. I'm sure it's super loud, especially if you're listening with earbuds. Um... So the Lord's anger burned against Moses because now, guys, Moses isn't just making excuses and God has been patient with him and has addressed all his concerns, but now he's just being disobedient. Now he's literally just saying, I'm not doing this, God, pick someone else. So the Lord is angry at him. The Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, he's on his way now to meet you. When he sees you, his heart will rejoice. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you and he will be your spokesman. And you will serve as God to him and take this staff in your hand and you will perform the signs with it. Okay, you might think that Aaron here is a blessing to Moses. He's not. Aaron is somewhat a curse to Moses. Um... Aaron is, he might be eloquent, but he lacks content and substance. And in fact, when we get to the desert and we find that all the Israelites are desirous to worship a false god, Aaron's the one that gives them the golden calf that they're all worshiping, an idol, falsely. So, you know, Aaron... Aaron is not necessarily a blessing to Moses 
in my opinion, he's sort of a thorn. And Moses would have been better off just obeying God and doing it, just doing it himself. But that's just, that's something to think about. I've told you about Jonah, Jonah trying to go the other direction and not going to preach in Nineveh. There's many times in our lives where God tells us to do something and he will make concessions to us, but it's not what's best. I mean, we think about, go back to Lot, who's like, I can't go to the mountains talking to the angels. He says, let me just go to this small town and live in this and go to this small town. Who knows what was in those mountains? You know, you don't know what you miss out on. And, uh, and that's, it's kind of sad. Who knows what Moses's life or the Israelites life would have been like, had he had just done what God told him to do instead of taking on Moses or Aaron as a companion. All right. Verse 18. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, please let me return my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. So that was kind of him and polite to go talk to his father-in-law and employer. Even if his employer said no, though, you know, Moses would need to go because God told him to. Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, return to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and set out for the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do in front of Pharaoh, all the wonders I have put within your power, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. Okay, so we just got to like probably one of the most quote unquote, and I actually hate this term because it's it's gotten really bad, but quote unquote problematic verses in the Bible. Um, and that is where it says, uh, I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. Okay. In Genesis, you're going to find basically three different instances, language around hardening heart, not Genesis, Exodus, around hardening of hearts. Um, you have it basically where it says God will harden his heart. You have it where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then you have elsewhere where it just basically says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. (laughs) It doesn't really give a person behind it. Um, Anytime you see where it says, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or God will harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to explain this to you, and it is an exceptional explanation for anyone who has ears to listen to it. There are plenty of people out there who, after I give the explanation, I'll go, well, well, no, it's not what it says. But honestly, God gave us brains and minds to, to actually think things through and contextualize them. And so I'm going to contextualize this for you with scripture. If you flip over to Romans 1, um, specifically Romans 1, verse 18 to 32, you're going to see probably one of the most horrific, uh, but excellent explanations, verses in the Bible. Um, It basically describes what theologians call common grace, which I'm going to touch on in a second. But in that chapter, God is basically saying because of these people's idolatry and because of their sin, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give them over to their sin. He basically says that if they're not going to, if they're not going to worship me and they're going to pursue sin, 
I'm going to allow them to pursue sin. And they're going to be able to reap the consequences that come from that without me mitigating it. In other words, God is basically saying, if they're going to have this attitude and worship idols and not listen to my voice, in essence, harden their hearts, I'm going to let them harden their hearts. I'm going to turn them over to their sin, and I'm going to withhold my mercy from them. Okay, so common grace. Theologically, even Calvinists and Arminians kind of agree on this point. Theologically speaking, it's basically said that all people have common grace placed upon them. This is why Jesus basically says that it rains on the, the righteous and the unrighteous. I think the Bible says that twice, actually, and in various different ways. But basically, God has grace on both the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's why even the unrighteous might have a functioning family on occasion, might um, become very wealthy. God will bless them, like materially bless them because of this grace that he has, which is, remember, it's unmerited favor, grace, this common grace that everyone has. I mean, the fact that we still breathe you know, the fact that people are still breathing in their unrighteousness is grace. It means God is being patient and extending their life, giving them an opportunity to repent. So that's grace. But keep in mind, God doesn't have to give that grace. And in fact, he can remove it. And so basically, any time you see it saying, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, keep that in mind. It's really saying God's removing his grace and his mercy from Pharaoh. Neither of those two things Pharaoh deserves. That's the point. Mercy is undeserved. Grace is undeserved. And, you know, God's fed up and he's going to remove those. And by doing that, he allows Pharaoh to take the natural course that his sin would send him on, which would be a hard heart towards God. So for me, that explanation is beyond satisfying for reading this scripture. But for many other people, it's a stumbling block they just like won't get over. And I think that's just they won't actually think it through and they won't cross-reference it with the rest of scripture. They just take it uh, at face value. And that's never smart. You always need to contextualize what you read in scripture or really any 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 uh, written work, um, I know like C.S. Lewis. You know he wrote "Surprised by Joy," which is his autobiography, and so this was probably written in the 40s or 50s. But when he was growing up, he was in a school, and basically he describes in his words he underwent the fagging system. Now, for us in modern day, that means something totally different. You know, usually it's a slur for gay people. But for him, it had nothing at all to do with homosexuality. And in fact, we would use the word hazing. Basically, he went through a hazing system. But he used that other term I just mentioned to describe it. You just read that off the bat, you know, by itself. You're going to, because of who you are, modernist perception, you're going to interpret it through your lens, and you're going to get it wrong. But if you read his autobiography, you know, in context and you read about him being bullied and hazed, you're like, oh, okay, well, that makes total sense. 
That's all I'm saying. When you read scripture, contextualize it. Don't just look at it and take it at face value. Actually engage your mind. So, okay. Um, one last thing. I did have a, a quote by St. Augustine that I thought was really good. Basically, St. Augustine said, uh, God does not harden men by putting evil into them, but by not giving them mercy. So, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, because evil's already there. He just removes his mercy or his grace. Uh, okay, I told you. Okay. On the trip at an overnight, this is verse 24. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and sought to put him to death. Okay, this is the Lord talking about Moses. <laughs> so this is like out of left field almost, in my opinion. So, okay, on, a, on the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and sought to put him to death. So Zipporah, which is Moses' wife, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet. Then she said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to, circ to the circumcision. This just seems way out of left field. But let me explain what I think is going on. God is wanting to, he's pruning Moses. And the Abrahamic covenant, remember the whole sign of the covenant is the circumcision. You circumcise all the males in your household. Moses had not done this. I think it's supposed to be done on the eighth day, and he had not done this for his child. Now, this must be horrifying for the child, and Zipporah hates it also. And apparently, we're missing a little bit of conversation here, but Zipporah apparently knows why God's anger, angry against Moses. And, uh, and it has to do with the fact that they didn't circumcise his child. Now, Zipporah you know, you become, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. She's apparently very upset, doesn't like this ritual. She probably thinks it's really brutal and gross, especially because she did it, had to do it herself with a flint knife. Um, you know, so she's just, she doesn't like this at all, but she is obviously confronted by God also, believes in this God, and is supporting her husband, um, dramatically supporting him, and even doing what's best for him that he wouldn't do for himself. I guess that's a bad bad verbiage to put that in, but it's the best way I could put it with my mouth at this moment. <laughs> I'm like Moses, apparently. Not good with words. So, anyways, I think the 360 look of that is basically this. If you're going to be a leader, eh, you need to be above reproach. That basically means that people shouldn't be able to slander or bring anything against you. And the New Testament talks about elders in the church being above reproach. means that uh, they live such lives, you know, godly lives of conduct. That doesn't mean they're sinless. It means when they do sin, they seek forgiveness. So, but they live such, such lives of transparency above reproach um, that they are then fit for leadership. And Moses had compromised in this area of his life and had not followed the Abrahamic covenant. And he needed to take care of that in order to be a good leader for Israel, because obviously all those people are going to look at him and say, you haven't even done this for your son. Like, how can we trust you? So it'd be hypocritical. Verse 27. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites 
Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. I'm sure a lot of people cried, if you can imagine, being in slavery for that long and uh, generationally enslaved. And here God has come, he had promised to come, and he has finally sent his man to free his people. And you know what? I actually want to probably do an entire... Uh, and I'll do this, I think, after we get into the desert. I'll probably do an entire podcast on slavery itself. And what does the Bible have to say about slavery? Because a lot of people are confused on that topic. Um, so I, I kind of look forward to doing that one. It's interesting. I had some debates in college. There was a guy who was a lawyer, studied theology, very bright man. He and I disagreed on on what the Bible had to say about slavery because I, I, I said, well, the Bible is against it, and I'm going to lay that out for you. And then he would basically say, well, no, you know, people use the Bible to justify slavery in America. And I'll cover that also. But in any case, when we get to the law and rules regarding that, I'll do that. That's going to be in like, I don't know, uh, 15 more chapters. But it just popped in my mind because I was just thinking about these people who have finally heard that they're going to be freed. I mean, that's got to be a joyous day, and they worship God, which is the right thing to do on that occasion. So we'll get into chapter 5 next time we meet. Until then, this is James from The World's Last Night.